Well, let me ask, have you ever been over your head in a venture? You know, you, you know the desperate feeling? Perhaps you're a, you're a student in a class that was beyond your ability, at least at the beginning. And I mean, I could think of a couple of times as a freshman in college when I walked in and I thought, I am over my head. And, um, or perhaps it's a job for which you, um, you're not adequately prepared. Whatever the situation, you felt desperate. You know? You're expected to perform, but you don't know what to do. Or, or maybe you know what to do, but you, you just don't have the ability to accomplish it. You were in over your head. Well, let me tell you, King Saul knew that feeling. So we're going to look at that passage in First um, Samuel chapter 14. We have the whole chapter to... Um, to cover, now you'll see an insert in there with, with some of the verses, really the last few verses uh, that you're welcome to look at as well, but um, also open up your Bibles. If you remember last week, uh, we left Saul in a desperate situation. The Philistines had amassed a, a large army. They were raiding his, his land. Samuel, his most trusted counselor, had left him. His soldiers were running away. Some of them were hiding in, in caves. Some of them have actually gone over to the other side. And, um, and it's, he's feeling desperate. You know, that, that victory that he had had of rescuing the, the city from the Ammonites, you know, it seemed that it had established him as, as a true savior king, that he, that he knew how to protect his people. But if you remember, that, that was a sudden thing in which the, the Holy Spirit, we're told, rushed upon him. And it was an emotional thing. And at that moment, he was able to, to save the day. But, but now it's given way to indecision. He's like a, like a young athlete, you know, who, who kind of bursts on the professional scene with, with gusto. And he's having this great year, but suddenly discovers after a while that he's in a league a little bit better than what he's ever been before. He's playing with athletes who have proven themselves over the time, and he begins to lose his swagger, begins to lose his self-confidence, begins to ask himself, what am I doing here? What have I gotten myself into? Well, that's what's going on with Saul. He's in that same boat. And it's going to take a young soldier to generate action, just as actually he had done before. It's his son, Jonathan. And it is Jonathan, who on his own, makes a bold move against the Philistines, and he's the one who starts the battle. He scales a cliff. And this is not walking up a hill. A cliff. He and his armor bearer, it must have been more difficult for the armor bearer, I would think. And he, he crawls up there. Surprises the men, kills about 20 of them. And then you add to that surprise attack, God throws on a little quake, and the Philistines are thrown into a panic, and the battle begins. Saul joins in the fray. Those AWOL soldiers uh, rejoin their comrades. Uh, those who'd gone over to the other side start to fight uh, their enemies, the Philistines. And... Um, and victory starts to, takes place. 
to a degree. In fact, it ends up at the end of the day, it's one of those cases where the victory felt like defeat. So what happened? Well, there's several troubling signs in our text. And the first sign is this, is that um, Saul once again needed his son to start the fighting. He himself, as the king, he was at a standstill. He, he couldn't rally his troops. But he himself, he's holed up in a cave. And he had lost the wise counsel of Samuel. And the reason he lost that was because he had already lost his nerve waiting for Samuel. He just did not know what to do. Now, the second uh, sense of trouble is seen in the counselor that Saul now has. It's in verse 3. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. And by the way, how do you know how to pronounce names? You just say them boldly. Just say them boldly. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, so Ahijah, the son of Hayatum, Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now, why didn't he just say the name? He didn't even need to say the name at all, but now he says the name, he, you know, he's the son of, son of, son of, and you go, it ends up, well, he's the great grandson of Eli. He's carrying on the family work of high priest. Now, for those who were here two or three weeks ago, you can ask yourself, wait a minute, isn't that the same family in which God pronounced judgment on? Yep, that's who it is. This is not the man you want beside you acting as your mediator with the Lord. And indeed, it's, it's here now that Saul seems the most to be grasping at straws. He needs, or he thinks he needs, well, he needs the ark. That's what he needs. He needs the ark of God uh, because, you know, you have the ark of God with you. That's going to give you victory. Well, do you remember the last time that the ark was brought into camp uh, for, to bring victory against the Philistines? It was total disaster. So none of this bodes well for Saul. But again, Jonathan has forced his hand. So that if Saul, is, he has to cut off the consultation, he has to join in the battle. And that leads him to his rash vow. Now, a full-scale battle, I presume, I've never been in a full-scale battle, is taxing enough on those who are fighting it. But the duel without any nourishment is all the more exhausting. Exhausting, But that's exactly what Saul forced on his own soldiers. In verse 24 notes, that Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And isn't him just saying, Jay, I, I don't want anybody to eat. This is a, an official oath, an official curse. And the people recognized it, and they were afraid to touch any food at all because they don't want a curse to come upon them. And that curse would be Saul killing them. Okay. Now, this is a case where emotion in the heat of the battle leads to foolish action. I mean, what is going on in Saul's mind to utter such a ridiculous oath? 
Is it just, just, he's just so frustrated and he's angry with the Philistines who, I mean, they're the ones who are making his life miserable. I mean, he, he said, I want to be avenged on my enemies. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's embarrassment. Because it's, this is a battle that his son has started. And it's his son who's again leading this battle. Well, whatever the reason, it certainly shows poor leadership. And it shows a mind that is caught up in himself rather than what is best for his own men. Well, such a binding on his fighters weakened them. It lessened their ability to hunt down their enemies. And it even then led to sin by many of them. Once nightfall came and the, the curse is lifted, they are so famished. They killed the, the beast, the donkeys and whatever else that the enemies left behind, uh, right there on the spot. And they so quickly did it that they did not allow the blood to drain. And they ate the meat with the blood. Now, this is clear violation of the law of God. When Saul hears about it, he does respond quickly. He provides a means to drain the blood, but it's, it's too late. The sin has been committed. Now, we're then told that Saul builds an altar, and, it, and it's actually unclear if the writer thinks this is a good or bad thing. He, did, he, he just says he builds an altar, and it's the first one that he did. Now, it, um, you know, perhaps, probably, he's, you know, you build an altar like Samuel did as kind of a commemoration to give, give thanks to God. But it's, what's unclear is whether Saul had the legitimacy as a non-ordained, he's not a priest or anything, to do that. But maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But meanwhile, the fighters are now fed. And he wants to continue the battle through the night and score a decisive victory. Let's just wipe them out. And the men are with him. They're ready to do this. Well, that's when, was it Hahijah, Eli's great-grandson steps in. He says, you know, why don't we, why don't we seek the Lord's will? Let us draw near to God. Now, seems like a good religious thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, how can you argue with seeking the counsel of the Lord? Well, whatever might be the means, and it's unclear here how you actually get seek the will and get an answer, whatever he does, none is forthcoming. God doesn't say no, there's just no answer. And so Saul is stymied. Now what follows next is just simply a bizarre scene. Saul concludes that the reason for no answer is, must have been a sin committed. Now, although the eating of meat with this blood is a, it's a blatant transgression of the law of God, Saul doesn't go there. His, he does a method of, well, actually, it's unclear exactly how he does it, but it would have been the accepted means of determining God's will. Everyone would have accepted it. And it leads him to Jonah, his son, and the clear champion of the battle that day. And what was Jonah's sin? Well, he did not know of his father's oath. He hadn't heard about it. Okay. He didn't get the memo. But he, so he broke, not God's law, 
but his father's foolish vow, his oath, that his law. And again, he, he broke the oath, not knowingly, but in complete innocence. And all the more, by the way, when he did break it, it, it actually strengthened him so that he was able to continue on in the battle. So all the more puzzling it is to me, anyhow, that God leads Saul not to the men who transgress God's law, but to Jonah. And by the way, I mean, one could argue, I certainly would argue, that it was Saul by his foolish oath that even led those men to their sin. But to give Saul credit, I mean, he gives the opportunity to the Lord to expose even himself. Okay. And yet it is, it is Jonathan who becomes that scapegoat. Now, how then does Saul the father react? Is he, is he torn with remorse over his own folly? Is he filled with grief for his son? When, when Jonathan nobly accepts his faith, he says, I shall die. Does, does Saul weep over him? No. Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Again, what's going through Saul's mind? Is he, is he just so angry at his son for tasting a bit of, of, of honey? Is he angry at his son for making a fool of himself? As his oath is made so clearly foolish and odious to all those around him. How could Saul act here so so self-righteously, to call upon the name of God as he prepares to kill his own son. Now, it's only the righteous indignation of Saul's own men that saves Jonathan. And they intervene with their own oath. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day, if you're going to bring God into the equation. Now, meanwhile, the battle is ended, and the remains of the Philistine army escape. And there's still more to be said about Saul, uh, at least in terms of him being a warrior king that uh, covers actually the rest of his reign. And it is not what we would expect after all this. Let me read it to you. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. I mean, go figure. This foolish, indecisive, rash king turns into a valiant, tough warrior who actually fulfills the expectations of the office. I mean, the people had wanted a king. Why? They said, so that he will go out before us and fight our battles. You've got to give Saul credit. He did it. Now, what are some lessons that we can kind of gather from all of this? And let, let me just say first, I have a lot of sympathy for Saul. I mean, Saul never asked to be king, did he? In fact, uh, he even claimed, you know, you got the wrong guy. I'm, I, I'm just not the guy for it. 
Now, he has one battle victory. And again, that was the result of the Spirit of God just rushing out upon him. And now he's surrounded. He's surrounded by his enemies. To me, it's easy to lose one's nerve. It certainly is easy not to be thinking clearly. Saul is in over his head in a desperate situation. Even having said that, he would have done well to follow just two principles that's good for us all. The first one is this. When responsibility is given, we are to accept it and to trust in the Lord. You know, in in the Lord of the Rings, there's this great scene. Gandalf is explaining to to Frodo the, the history of the ring and how it has come into his possession. And Frodo responds, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Now, no doubt, Saul had the same thoughts. And Gandalf responds with an answer that applies to Saul and applies to us all, especially to those of us who acknowledge our Lord and his sovereignty. So do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. The times in which we live, the places where we live, our personalities, the gifts that we possess, all of these things have been given us. And with them, we are to, uh, to serve our Lord responsibly. I mean, much, if not most, of our circumstances are just simply outside our control. But what we do possess is our determination to accept whatever the Lord brings our way and to serve him to the best of our ability. And understand as well that every circumstance is is a test for us. And it's not so much for how well we will perform, but how well we will trust our Lord. Do you trust now that whatever your circumstance, it is not outside the control of your Lord? Do you trust that he will not give you more than you can bear? Do you trust that he will bring you through your particular battle And he will do it in such a way that it will be for your good. Do you trust him well enough that your focus is only to do what is honorable before him, leaving to him the outcome? If you have that kind of trust, with that trust you will not lose your nerve. You will not feel overwhelmed. You will not act out of desperation. Now, a second principle is this, that we are to embrace, we're to embrace the achievement of others. And we're to acknowledge our own limitations and our mistakes. Now, all of you, you know this, any list of principles, any book that's being written, articles on, on the principles of leadership in any field, what will include the principle of empowering and recognizing the ability of others. And coupled with that is knowing one's limits. Any good leader, whatever field, 
knows his or her limits and appreciates what others bring. Now, I don't know, maybe in the political world, I can, I can see where it might be a, a mistake to admit your mistakes, but I, I tell you, everywhere else, that variability, that, that actual humility, we know it wins respect. We always respect someone who, who admits when they're wrong and who praises someone when they're right. Now, if, if Saul had lauded his son, if he had admitted that his rash oath was just that, that it was rash, he would have won the respect of his people and of his soldiers. He would have given due honor to his Lord. And I tell you, that's much more effective than building altars of stone. And so we need to do the same. Are you quick to give credit to others for the good work that they do? Are you generous in praising others? Are you forthcoming with your own limitations and mistakes? Are you accepting of others receiving more credit than you? Of others being given more responsibility? Are you able to take pleasure in the work and responsibility that the Lord has seen fit for you to have, even if it does not seem equitable? Do you rest in the Lord for your reputation and reward? If you do, then you will not feel the stress of of having to win the praise of others. And you will do your work out of the, the pleasure of that work and of pleasing your Lord, and not out of any sense of of competition or or vain praise. If you do so, then you will have peace. Now, after all of this, let me tell you really what this whole passage just had me just really scratching my head, and I've already actually spoken of this. And it's why God would have allowed the scene Verses 43 to 45, okay, it's, it's in your insert, of, of Saul threatening Jonathan. Okay. Now again, give, give him credit. Saul did not seek Jonathan out. He did not know of his son's oath-breaking. He didn't even know what the sin supposedly was. It is God that led Saul to John through this ancient version of coin tossing. Now, it seems to me, again, as I said, look, it ought to have been the people who ate the the meat uh, with the blood in it or or saw with this foolish oath. Why does God pick on poor Jonathan, who is innocent of sin, who has risked his life to win victory, all because he was trusting the Lord? Remember, he says, we'll see that this is a sign from the Lord. It's because he trusted the Lord that he made that initial battle encounter. Well, I tell you, I have yet to be successful trying to get into the mind of God that God does not reveal. So I, I, just, I just don't know why. But here's what I do know. A masterful novelist, someone who's writing a novel, who's good at it, they will set up at the beginning of their novel that climatic scene that's going to take place later on. 
They'll have a scene that might seem uneventful, but then it comes back to play. Maybe, maybe the purpose is to show a particular trait of the, of the uh, hero, and it comes back to the fore later. Or maybe it's an incident that, you know, doesn't seem of any great importance right then, but it proves to being what sets everything in motion, leading to the climax. Oftentimes, it's, it's a scene that, that foreshadows in some way what will come. Maybe even do it in such a way as to set up a contrast as to what will come later on. And the writer of 1 Samuel uh, is not thinking of way into the future. When he's writing the scene of Saul and John, but there is another writer. And that writer is the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, I cannot help but think that God, the Holy Spirit, yeah, he's thinking ahead to the moment of God the Father sending God the Son to die for God's people. I mean, compare the stories. You have Saul the father makes an oath that Jonathan, his son, breaks. Okay? I mean, it's unknowingly, but he breaks it. Now, in his wrath, Saul is prepared to slay Jonathan, his son, for oath-breaking, which in, in Saul's mind, that's what prevented his army from completing their victory. And so what happens? The people have to ransom, and if you have the English Standard Version, that's the word that's used, ransom, not rescue, which means to pay for him, to save him from his supposed sin. And it's very likely they offered some kind of sacrifice or some kind of redemption money to ransom him. Now, do you get that? The people ransom Jonathan their Savior. See, this is what they said of him. He has worked this great salvation in Israel. Now, hear the gospel. God made a covenant with our father Adam. And our father Adam broke the covenant in the Garden of Eden. His sin was passed down to us. And every one of us has proven time and again our sinfulness. All of us are oath-breakers, transgressing the law of God. It is our sin that has prevented this world from becoming the paradise it was meant to be. But then God the Father, though he had cause for just wrath, he made a covenant with God the Son. And for his Son to make a ransom for us oath-breakers, so that the wrath that should have fallen on us fell upon the Son. This is the plan of a God who was far from being made desperate by circumstances getting out of hand. However terrible may have seemed his enemy, Satan, our God was never in over his head, but he was always working all things out for his glory. And the champion that he sent, his beloved son, never had to act without checking, first of all, with his father. As did Jonathan have to do when he you know, went on with his own uh, action without talking with his father. Our Lord always acted in the will of his father. 
And indeed, he was carrying out his work of redemption according to the precise plan and desire of his father. Our Lord routed his enemies upon the, on the cross. And on the cross, he made ransom for our sins by, by shedding of his precious blood. We have knowingly committed our sins. We have not been driven to sin through rash oaths of someone else, as, as were the men who ate the meat with the blood. We were not ignorant of oaths, as was Jonathan. We have loved our sin. But even so, God, God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to die for us as our ransom. And though, yes, God's, the Father, his just wrath fell upon the Son. The Son, nevertheless, was fulfilling the will of his Father, who was well pleased with his Son's act of obedience. Indeed, again, the Son was fulfilling the Father's oath to send a Son to save, to ransom his people. And so the son was fulfilling his own oath to do the will of his father. The scene of the cross was a scene of oath fulfillment, not oath breaking. And the oath that brought upon the cross was one of deep wisdom and deep mercy. It was not made in rash anger, but it was made in profound love. And this is love, wrote John. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so you. If anyone here has yet to receive this love, to place your, your faith in the ransom that was made for you, now is the time to do so. Carry out the will of God the Father, which is to place your faith in the work of God the Son. And if you have already turned to God the Son, then all the more commit yourself to follow his example, to do the will of his Father, to accept whatever role is given to you to play, to live your life trusting in your Lord. We give you thanks, our God, for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Champion, our King, has won the victory for us upon the cross. We give you thanks and praise for the wondrous love that would send him to us. In his name we pray. Amen.